So we're moving into the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians this morning. Once again, just to remind us ourselves, the Galatians is an area, not a single church, but a group of churches. And these group of churches had been heavily influenced by those who had had a history under the Mosaic law, under the law of Moses. So just to kind of remind ourselves of what we've seen in the first four chapters, um, Paul has effectively laid out his case. You know, he's writing a letter here that really is quite a, a stern warning to these Christians that he's planted these churches in this area. And this letter of Galatians really is quite a, an emotional uh, letter from Paul, a very stern letter to really rebuke them and to wake them up out of their complacency. You see, he's already stated now that the gospel was by grace alone. Nothing can be added to it. And this was what he preached to them at the beginning, originally when he'd gone on the first missionary trip. This was the gospel that he preached. It's just the gospel of grace, that you can't do anything, you can't add anything to it, your good works won't help in in that regard. But then these Judaizers had come, and they'd corrupted the simplicity of the gospel by commanding obedience to the law of Moses. What they were saying, and these Judaizers, many of these would have been Christians, But they still were saying, but we need to still keep the law of Moses. You know, now that we are saved, now that we know Jesus, and we know that Jesus is the Messiah, all that's good, but we can't lay aside things like circumcision or the Jewish feasts or... And they carried on. And so they were corrupting just the simplicity of the gospel message. Now, the thing we need to understand is that some of these people were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And the message they were bringing was corrupting, again, the simplicity of the gospel. And then Paul, as we've seen in his first four chapters, demonstrates the following things. First of all, that the gospel was given to him by revelation from Jesus Christ. This is not a man-made thing. This isn't something the apostles got together and decided upon. This was given to Paul by Jesus. Secondly, the apostles had approved his gospel. So it's not as if Paul is now going off on a tangent and preaching something new. That which Paul was preaching was something that all the apostles were in total agreement on. This is the way of salvation. You see, at their first meeting, the Galatians had gladly accepted the gospel and Paul reminds them of that fact. Now he says that when I came to you, he speaks of the joy that they had, suddenly being faced with the reality that they could be made righteous, right with God, simply by believing in Jesus. And that their eternity could be secure, that they didn't have to do anything. What joy that brings, well, that is the good news of the gospel. And Paul reminds them that you know, this is how they'd felt at the first. And then Paul compares the law with a child who'd not yet become of age. And that child, effectively being under the law, never could come of age. The law was never able to bring a child to that place. And he uses this example we looked at last time. The gospel, on the other hand, declares those who receive it to be sons and heirs. This total contrast, we said last time, that in that culture, that a child, until they became of age, were no better than a servant or a slave in the household, inasmuch as they had no right, they had no say, they had no position, even though one day they may inherit all, until that time came that the father bestowed upon them this privilege of an heir, they had nothing. 
But what Paul says is that under the gospel, we have been made sons and heirs. We now get to inherit everything. We have been adopted by God. We're now counted as his sons. And Paul makes this incredible contrast. Paul goes on to say that the systems of this world, and that includes the law of Moses, only put us in bondage. Because they say it's all about what we can do. You see, that is really the hallmark of every other religion. But the gospel says you are free because Christ has done it all. Many of the songs we were singing this morning reflecting exactly this point, that Christ has done it all. We read in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, that not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You know, notice what we did? Nothing. Just believe. Not by works of righteousness. It wasn't by anything that we could have done. We said last time, that there are only two religions in the world. True and false. That's it. You know, the false religions are all alike in they say, something in my hand I bring. It's all about what you can do. Your effort, the way that you fast or do charitable deeds or you pray or you do this or you do that. Or you keep some sort of ordinances. The true religion revealed from heaven leads us to saying, nothing in my hand I bring. It's not about me. Why? Well, it's so that Jesus can take all the glory. Not us. As we sung this morning in the words of the song by Casting Crowns, not because of who I am, but because of what you have done Jesus and not because what I've done not about our works but because of who you are just a wonderful simple lyric but just so powerful the question now is and this is the challenge to the gospel and this is something that I've been asked and I'm sure some of you have been asked before if you now have this liberty if you've just been saved and been given salvation simply by believing if your sins are now forgiven if you have this liberty if Christ has done it all If all of your sin is paid for, being past, present and future, that means you can just live as you like, without any fear of retribution. Is that what we're saying? Well, this is the question that Paul is going to address in this chapter, along with the how-to of grace. And I think this is such a fundamental thing for us as Christians to get our head around. We talk a lot about grace, but it's the how-to bit that I think probably a lot of Christians miss. So let's jump into chapter 5 of the book of Galatians, and we read, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So Paul starts here with this bold statement, Stand fast. You know, Now, first of all, there'd be no need for this admonition if it was easy. You know, if the Christian walk was an easy walk and we didn't have any effort at all involved, Paul wouldn't have to remind us to stand fast. But he does, because there is a real danger that we need to be aware of. You know, it implies the word itself, warfare. We have to hold the line. You know, we're not going to retreat. For if we do, notice what we're told, we will become entangled with the unbearable bondage of self-sufficiency. The idea that it's about me. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm sure that in years gone by, you get to January the 1st and you make a New Year's resolution. And, you know, you may get to the 2nd of January. Some of you may even get to the 3rd or 4th of January. But we're not very good at keeping those things. 
some of you may have decided to uh, to go on a diet, and that kind of works to a point. There are some people that do extremely well, but you know, at the end of the day, whatever we choose to do, we will fail, and we know we will fail. We might go part way, but we can never complete the work. And this is the problem. This is the bondage of this self-sufficiency, believing that it's about me, that I have to do it. And this is why Paul is saying, stand fast with the liberty that you have. Never go back to that place where it's about what you can do. And it's a far more real danger than most Christians perceive. A lot of Christians are always trying to get to the next spiritual level. Wanting to be more holy, more righteous. Wanting to be more like somebody else they look at in the, the Christian arena. Oh, I'd like to be like that person. They seem to have such a, a good relationship with God. And I'm going to start reading some books or I'm going to start to do this. Or I'm going to start to do that. Immediately you go down that road, you've crossed over that line. And this is why Paul is saying, stand fast in the liberty you already have. Don't go back to that place. Notice also that he tells us, where with Christ has made us free. What an important point that is. That's not just a, an add-on. That's really the whole central message of grace. You know, is it possible that there's anything that we could do that would be better than what Christ accomplished at Calvary? It's crazy. The whole notion that we could ever do anything that is of more value to God than the death of his own son for us. And yet the moment you try and start being good, being righteous by your own efforts, you're doing that. That's offensive to God. And this is the problem. This is why Paul again starts. Stand fast. Hold the line. And this may be new to you. Maybe you've not thought about this before. But you see, remember that before you were even born, Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Even before you were born, Jesus had already committed to carry your sin, to pay your burden, your price, so that you can be free. John 8 36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You know, think about your effort to try and get right with God, to be righteous, to be holy, all of those kind of things. But if Jesus is the one that's doing it, do you honestly think there's anything you can do that will be better than that? Paul carries on. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And that is, if you choose to be under the jurisdiction of the law, you cannot benefit from the freedom and liberty of those in Christ. See, you're either attempting to get to God by your efforts, or you're rested in the completed work of Christ on your behalf, and are now, and notice undeservedly, clothed in his righteousness. That's the point. You are undeservedly clothed in his righteousness. There's nothing you could have done to earn this. We didn't deserve it. That's why it's grace. Verse 3 carries on. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. I.e., everyone that chooses to be circumcised, believing that it will grant him favour with God, has chosen the path to God via the law. Now remember, I've said this before, there are two ways to be saved. Now most people think it's heretical to say that, but it's not. This is exactly what we're being told. There are two ways to be saved. One, you keep the law, the law of Moses. You keep every single one of the commandments by the Jews reckoning there's 613 of them. 
How you keep every single one of them, every single minute of every single day of your life, without breaking a single one. If you can do that, well then you can be righteous. Right with God. Of course you can't. We've got to remember, see, that the law is a union. And if a person puts himself under any part of the law, i.e. circumcision or whatever is being referred to here, but anything, then you're a debtor to the entire code with its requirements and its curse. Hebrews 3.10 tells us that, so does James 2.10. Romans 11 verse 6 says, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. (laughs) It's obvious, isn't it? And he says, but if it be of works, then there's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Back in Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says there, Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. You know, you go out to work, you earn money, you'll get paid for that. You've done something, you get something in return. That's the way it works. That's how the law effectively would work. But we're told, but to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You see, if you stayed at home and did nothing and your employer just paid you money, well, you know, you've done nothing, that would be grace. You've not earned it, you've not deserved it. In the much bigger arena of eternity, you've done nothing to earn salvation. God has given it to you. It's a free gift. It cost the death of his son, but it's given to you freely. So it's an insult to God then to try and do something to attain to a standard. It says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now this is quite a, an interesting verse. A verse that some people seem to get kind of uh, troubled by. You see, if you choose to be justified by your own works, rather than accepting Christ's atoning death in your place... You deny the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Bible tells us that when we become Christians, part of this incredible gift is that we get given the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells within us. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit dwelling within us is the seal and the guarantee of our inheritance. So somebody that is choosing the path of the law is rejecting this witness of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, Christ has become of no effect unto you if you choose to be justified by the law. If that's the path you're going down, that you want to do things to be right with God, or you're denying that God, by his grace, has saved you, paid your price, and given you his spirit as justification. And this, I believe, is exactly what we read about in Matthew 12, which is referred to as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus says that you, know, you can blaspheme against Jesus, you can blaspheme against the Father. Blasphemy against the Spirit is an unforgivable sin. Why? Because he's speaking of the witness of the Holy Spirit within each one of us. Now, Paul here is not referencing this to believers. This is to those who would look on. Those who, in Galatia, would get to read this, get to hear of this. Paul is saying, look, you've got two paths before you to heaven. One is via the law. One It's by grace, through Jesus Christ. But if you choose the path of law, well then Christ doesn't help you in any way. It's no benefit to you because you can't avail yourself of the work that Christ accomplished if you're choosing to go your own way. And that is a blasphemy against this witness that you get 
when the Holy Spirit comes within you to confirm that everything is done, you need to add nothing. It's a rejection of that confirmation through the Holy Spirit. You see, such a person has hardened their heart to the good news of the gospel of grace. And there are such people like that that we come across. People that just do not want to accept Christ has paid for their sin. That there is a way to eternity. See, the same error is repeated today, of course, when individuals reject the clear teaching from a either a true believer or a biblical church. The salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the basis of it. And there are many people today that choose to reject that. And instead, people join churches that teach that salvation depends upon specific rituals or observances. You know, every other religion out there, even those that class themselves under the Christian banner, if they're adding anything to the simplicity of the gospel, well, as Paul said in the opening chapter we saw, let that person be accursed. You see, consider the promise given to one who accepts their salvation not on their own merit. In other words, one who accepts Christ. You see, we're told in John 10, verse 28 and 29, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. What an amazing promise that God gives to those who come to him empty-handed. So we carry on in Galatians 5, verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now look at this verse. This is great. We're waiting for something. Paul says we. He's talking about those now who have come to this realization that it is just by grace. It's this incredible gift that we've been given. There's a, a Greek word. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that one. You can see it there. But it means eagerly await. It's used seven times in the New Testament referring to the return of Jesus Christ. Eagerly awaiting. Expecting. You know, you sometimes see, don't you know, we, we have obviously in Portsmouth here the ships, these uh, naval ships that go out. And when they return, you see the wives waiting on the dockside, waiting for their husbands, eagerly waiting for their loved ones to come back. Well, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here, that kind of expectation, longing for Jesus to come back. Paul says, for we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Now, what's he saying? Because now he's saying we're hoping for the righteousness. He's talking to something that is yet to come. Okay, let's go through and understand this. Now, this of course is in contrast with the, the legalists, those that love the law. True believers by faith, not works, eagerly await the completion of their salvation. See, this is what Paul is really getting at. And we're going to throw in and try to understand this a little bit more. Because then the righteousness for which we hope will be fully realized. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, also verse 13 allude to this. That there is still something yet to come. There's something further for those that are trusting solely in Jesus Christ. At the coming of Christ, believers will be completely conformed to Christ and to his image. Meeting all the requirements of God's will. The inward, and if you like, for want of a better expression, forensic righteousness, that which is judicially imparted to us, which began a justification, will be transformed into an outward righteousness 
and glorification. So God will then publicly acknowledge all believers to be fully acceptable to him. Now, what are we saying in all of this? Well, it's sometimes referred to as the paradigm of salvation. And it's this. It's simply that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Let's just unpack that so we understand what we're talking about. See, justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. As believers, we are going through a process now where Christ is doing a work in us to transform us. And it's the work that he is doing. We read that he, the begun a good work in us, will continue it until that day. See, justification removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. That was done at the cross. But sanctification, and that's where we are now, removes the growth and the power of sin in our life. And that is a process that we're going through. Let me put it a different way. In the past tense, really, you've got the separation from the penalty of sin. That's justification. In the present tense, we've got the separation from the power of sin. That's sanctification. That's what the Lord is working on. That's what God is doing in the lives of believers who trust him. To separate us from sin's power and impact and effect on our lives now. But in the future tense, this is what Paul is speaking about in the verse we're looking at here. There is something yet to come. And that is separation from the presence of sin itself when we will finally be glorified. And that's what Paul's saying. We have this great hope. We're eagerly awaiting that. We have been saved. We are being saved through this work of sanctification. And ultimately, we will be transformed. We will be out of this world. Sin will no longer be a problem for us. All of those three things make up overall salvation. You see, again, justification is a gift from God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ alone. That's done. That's at the cross. It's been completed. You know, no longer is there anything held to our charge for our sin. It's all been paid for. But this present moment we're in now, this kind of sanctification stage, this is where we are right now with this progressive work that involves faith of course, works. Not works that we do because we have to, but just simply out of response to the love that God has shown us. And then finally, glorification is future tense. It's a result of the previous aspects. It's when we finally come to that place where all believers will be glorified. We will have resurrected bodies that won't be infirm, that won't be crumbling. We'll have a new resurrected body like Christ. But interestingly, some will have more glory and rewards than others. And we're going to look next week in a little bit more detail at that. Carry on in verse 6. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Now, for those in Christ Jesus, the true sphere of salvation, neither circumcision nor the lack of it, of any significance whatsoever. You know, what Paul is saying is, It doesn't matter one way or the other. It doesn't help. What matters is faith expressing itself through love. And we're going to get to something in a short while which will expound this yet further. You see, the key now is relationship. Just look at the contrast between law and love. You see, under the law, 
You've got, in a sense, one who's simply law-abiding, keeping the laws that have been given, as opposed to somebody, for example, just to illustrate, who does things because he loves his country, not because he has to. Or the difference between a servant who has to do something because it's his duty, and a son who does something because he wants to. You see, at home, Marla, as she's growing up, does a lot of little things to try and help. Sometimes they don't help as much as, <laughs> as we'd like them to. But, you know, she's got a heart of wanting to, to serve and help. And, you know, she doesn't do it because she has to do it. Why does she do it? Because she wants to please her daddy. And that's the difference between law and grace. And that's part of the answer to the question we're going to come to in just a moment. It's the difference between somebody who's a maid who would do something and serve and do whatever around the house as opposed to a wife. It's the difference between the Sabbath day, which is a day that typically for the Jews and so on, and even many Christians fall into this trap who don't stand fast. We try to keep the Sabbath day, thinking there's some spiritual benefit and blessing in it. And it comes to that place of realizing that every day is a Sabbath day. You know, the difference between one who tithes 10% under the legal system, as opposed to one who gives everything. You know, there's a lot of people that will tithe 10% to the Lord, and then the rest of everything they have, they'll do for whatever they want. You know, for us, we're not commanded to give 10% in the New Testament, but to give everything. You know, every time you buy something, as a believer, as a Christian, you should be asking a question, will this please the one I love? Is this going to be something that Jesus will be pleased with? Because I want to do something that makes Jesus happy. I want to do something that demonstrates that I love him. And of course, Paul makes it very clear that it is right and proper and good to give to your local church. That is something that is scriptural. Why? Because it enables the church to function. Paul then kind of changes tact a little. He says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And now he's employing a metaphor that he often uses here, that of kind of running a race. Uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians 9 and so on in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, they'd begun their race well, but someone had cut in on them in a sense, causing them to break stride and stumble. Now notice that the who. He says, you did run well, who did hinder you? You know, there may have been many false teachers that were disturbing the Galatians, but the singular pronoun here seems to indicate there was a particular individual, a leader maybe of the Judaizers, who was specifically in view that Paul was targeting. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? Here the result was that the believers were no longer obeying the truth, but were attempting to complete the race by legalistic self-effort rather than by faith. But notice again, I think this is interesting, how often it is just one person that causes so much damage. Again, we've said recently, we've seen that here. One person causing so much damage. And I know other pastors in other churches that will testify they've seen the same thing happen. One person, they gather around them a group of people that lack discernment. And it can hurt, it can damage, it can cause so many problems. But it's nothing new. Paul speaking of exactly that situation here with the Galatian Christians. And he says, this persuasion comes not from him that called you, 
the word persuasion there is uh, probably better translated persuasiveness or the idea is of gullibility, of fickleness. That, you know, they've been so gullible to follow after this person. They're so fickle. You know, this is an incredible thing. They've been preached the gospel by Paul. Their lives have been transformed. Somebody else comes in and says something and suddenly the one that they trusted all this time they reject now. It's so illogical. It's this idea that in this word itself, in this word persuasion, in the Greek, it means really, as I say, that kind of fickleness. You know, such false teachings the Galatians were beginning to embrace didn't originate in the God who called them. God wasn't the author of this. So he called them by and into grace. You know, mixing the works of the law and grace is not of the Lord. They were now being seduced by another voice into following a false gospel. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You see, that's the the answer to the, but does it really matter? Did you really have to say this, Paul? Can you just let things carry on as they were? You know, you're going to cause division. People might leave the church. Hmm. You know, Unless someone would feel that the apostle was making too much of the problem, he quotes this proverb. Again, to the effect that the false teaching, like leaven or yeast, that spreads and permeates. You see, and it can quickly affect the entire church. We see examples of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So all those people that are saying to the Galatians, or would have said, Oh Paul, does it, you, know, you should have maybe just let it go. And the people that have said recently in this church, regarding the recent issues we've had, did you really have to do anything? Could you not let it go? No. Because this is a matter of the gospel. And that's an area that we will not compromise on. It's 11 speaks of pride. And it's always evil. And every time you see these things, when you see it in the scriptures, when you see it in today's churches, the same thing is always at the root and there's pride there. Paul carries on and says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. See, Paul really expressing he's optimistic about the outcome. Really, he's saying that God is still in the situation, working all things for the good of those who love him. You know, that's a good thing for us to remember. Romans 8.28. Remember, in many of Chuck Misler's studies, he used to unequipped, but with all seriousness, really, that every day he goes to his Bible just to check that that verse is still there. Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. Paul hadn't given up. He was standing fast. And yes, there may be some casualties in Galatia, but it was worth it for those that were saved. He says, I know, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offence of the cross ceased. You know, Paul now turns and addresses the preposterous suggestion that apparently he was still preaching circumcision himself. He says, of course, before, before his conversion, he zealously proclaimed circumcision and the law and all of those things. But now, he was as adamant now of its futility as previously been zealous of its necessity. 
So those that were saying, well, Paul goes along with this. No, Paul's saying, I do not go along with it. If I were to go along with it, why would I be persecuted? You ask the obvious question, why am I being persecuted if I still uphold the law? Notice the word offence here. Paul says, then is the offence of the cross ceased. Do you want to comment on this? Because the message of the cross is offensive. But I want you to be very careful and cautious over this, because some people make an error here. It's not because it exposes unbelievers as sinners. That is not the offence that Paul is speaking of. You see, the law already does that very effectively. We're told that the law is written in the hearts of man. It's the the law of the Lord that we're told converts the soul. The law of the Lord is there to show that we are sinful. You know, most people, if you talk to them, are aware that they haven't got it all together. That there are things in their life that are not right. They're aware, they may not use the word, but they're aware that they're sinful. You don't have to convince people of that fact. And that's not the offence of the cross. Pretty much every religion acknowledges that, accepts that, that people are sinful. That's why there's this whole effort on doing things to counteract the sin. But the offence that Paul is speaking about is that you can do nothing to earn salvation. And for prideful man, that is offensive. You see, it strikes at the very heart of man's pride and self-sufficiency. You know, we like to be able to do something. We like to be able to contribute. We don't like it necessarily when we're weighted on hand and foot in that sense. We always kind of, you know, most of us make very bad patients. If you're not well, the idea of sitting and resting is sometimes very difficult. You want to do something to help. That's just an indication of that pride nature in each of us. But when it comes to the whole issue of salvation, to be told that you can do nothing of any value whatsoever, that is the offence. So people that go around speaking of this offence being that, you know, we're exposing people as sinners and that's why they're offended. No, that's not. That's not the offence. The offence is that you could do nothing to earn salvation. That is the issue that Paul is tackling here with the Galatians. And then he says, I would... They were even cut off, which trouble you. Now don't miss what Paul is saying here. Paul really wished that the Judaizers, who were so enthusiastic about circumcision, would just go the whole way and castrate themselves. That's really the import of what he's saying. And that was what the pagan priests of the cult of Sebel in Asia Minor and that area did at that time. He's saying, just, just go the whole way. And really, I like Chuck Mizner's comment on this. He says, perhaps the resulting physical impotence thus implied reflected Paul's desire that they also be unable to produce new converts. Boy, I like that. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. By love, serve one another. Let me read that again. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Okay, if you've missed everything else so far, this is the point I really want you to get. This is the key to the whole chapter, and this is the pivotal bit for believers today. Let me try and explain why. So this gives us the how-to answer to the question, how do I live by grace? The answer, really simply, by love, 
serving one another. See, the challenge is, can't we just do anything we want now? You know, if we've been saved by grace and we've been forgiven our sins and we've got this liberty, why can't we just go out and do whatever we want? One of the Muslims I work with said exactly that to me. He said, but the problem is, he said, what you're saying is that once you're saved, you could just go out and do anything you wanted to and you're still saved, you're still forgiven. I said, yeah, that's right. So the response to that question is, yes, we could do anything we wanted to and we are still forgiven. But we won't because the basis of our lives is love. It's love first and foremost for God and love for the brethren. Paul speaks of the, don't use this liberty for an occasion for the flesh. This word in the Greek, sarks, uh, is there. And it's used by Paul seven times to speak of the sinful nature that we have. Uh, Paul specifically charged the Galatians not to use their liberty as a basis for sin to gain a foothold. So don't do this because don't let sin gain a foothold in your life. Rather, the liberty being used for lust, the real goal should be love. Now, at this point I'd recommend a study of First John because as we've been going through this in our Bible studies, it's been incredible that God has been revealing exactly this point. That we first and foremost need to have our relationship with God right. If our relationship with God is not right, our relationship with each other will not be right. But if our relationship with each other is not right, our relationship with God is not right. And then John gives us a whole bunch of things to remind us of things that will come in and interfere with that relationship. And he talks about the things of the world. The lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Lost of the eyes, all those things he speaks of. And he's saying, you know, if you allow them to get in, they're going to destroy your relationship with each other. And if that happens, it will destroy your relationship with God. Or, if you allow those things to come into your life, it will destroy your relationship with God, which will then destroy your relationship with each other. So, the whole basis of this life of living by grace is love. If we love each other, Why would I want to do anything that is going to harm any one of you? You see, I may think and I may try and justify, but but nobody sees. But the reality is, in the spiritual realm, it has an impact. Whether I believe it or not makes no difference. It does. Because it will affect me. You know, you may have been at times, and I will put my hand up and certainly say I've been there, where I've allowed things in my life that I shouldn't have done, and at those moments I don't want to be around Christians. But there are other times when I've just been so close to God, when I've been in His Word, reading, studying, and just wanting to worship, and I just want to be around Christians. You see, the fellowship we have with each other is so vitally important to our walk with God. And this is the whole answer to the question. You know, why can't you just go out and do what you want? Lie, cheat, steal, lust and everything else. Well, because if you do that, you're going to harm each other. Would you really want to do Would I want to do something that's going to harm my children? Or harm my wife? No. So that's why I won't do them. Could I? Yes. I have the liberty there. Because I'm forgiven. I'm saved. I've been given this gift that I can do nothing to add to. But if I go and do those things, it will have a detrimental effect 
on my relationship with those that are nearest and dearest to me. And most importantly, it will have an effect on my relationship with God. This is such a, a pivotal verse in understanding this whole issue. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. He says, only use not liberty for an occasion for the flesh, but love and serve one another. Once again, why did Jesus wash the disciples' feet? Well, it was to teach us to lay down the right to ourselves. And instead, to joyfully love and serve each other. You see, we shouldn't be doing things out of a compulsion. You know, my mum taught me something that has always stayed with me. And this was at home. Whenever she'd gone shopping and brought shopping home, it would be, say, you know, stuff that had to go upstairs to the bathroom or whatever else, you know, you know, toothpaste or loo roll or deodorants or whatever. Or it could be stuff that, you know, had to go up that had been washed, some, some washing that to go to one of the bedrooms. And she told me, never ever go up the stairs and leave something there for somebody else to do. She said, do it because then you're helping them as well. You know, and it's just kind of stuck in my head. And I never, if there's stuff on the stairs and I'm walking up, I think, oh, I could do that. Because if I don't do it, I'm leaving it for somebody else to do. And you know, I want to do it to help somebody else. And so they may not even realize. Doesn't matter. But you see, that's what love's about. That's what Jesus was getting at here with this washing of the disciples' feet. Just do things for people. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to get onto that wonderful verse in Galatians 6, verse 2, which speaks of bearing each other's burdens. We really start to unpack this living by grace. See, the first four chapters, Paul is laying the whole thing down. Why it's so important. Then he's going on and now he's telling us, how do we live this life? How are we to apply this? How are we to go through each day with the grace that we need to speak kindly to each other? You know, when you come home from work and you're you're stressed because it's been a, a hard day, well, that's when you need the grace of God to speak lovingly. Or when you've been at home all day and the kids have been shouting and screaming and you've had enough with them and your husband walks in, that's when you need God's grace to show love. Or when you're just wound up by some other situation or circumstance that happens in your life and another believer happens to come past. You know, that's when we need to show grace. We, we need God's grace to show love. Why? Because if we damage the relationship with each other, we damage our relationship with God. It's a whole circle of this that just works together, everything working together. And if we do it, if we learn to live by grace and walk by faith, we will have such blessed lives. It's that Psalm 1 kind of life where everything we do will prosper. That doesn't mean we're going to win the lottery. That's not what it's saying. It's not that kind of prospering. It's talking about lives that have purpose. Lives that are full and fulfilled. You know, the joy that we get when we serve each other. I hope you know what I'm speaking about. I hope you have experienced that joy of doing something for somebody else, even if they don't know. And they may never find out. That doesn't matter because your Heavenly Father knows. But it's lovely just to do something for somebody. Just a little something to help. You know, it's just pride that would stop us doing that. Thinking that 
we don't need to, we're above that, or whatever. We'll talk more about this next week, but just this quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, we have the idea that we can dedicate our gifts to God. However, you can't dedicate what's not yours. There is actually only one thing you can dedicate to God, and that is your right to yourself. He says, see Romans 12 verse 1. If you will give God your rights to yourself, he will make a holy experiment out of you. And his experiments always succeed. I love that quote. So the last verse of this morning. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. This is wonderful. You know, Paul is speaking here and trying to get across to these Galatians that these Judaizers have come in, trying to get them to keep the law. And he says, look, all that effort is totally wasted. Because if we love our neighbour, if we live this life of grace, the whole law is fulfilled anyway. Everything they were striving to do could be done so simply under grace. You know, do you want to keep the law? Do you want to do something? Well then, submit to God's grace. And let love be the foundation. You know, there is that nature in us to want to do things. Well, we are given something we can do. Now this isn't earning our salvation. This isn't a work or anything else. But it's part of this response to God's love for us. That we love each other. And we're told in First John, and again, I'm just so, just amazed how God joins the dots and things together. You know, we didn't plan to study First John and study Galatians at the same time. The only reason we went into First John is because we got those books. We studied James because we thought it would be a good one to start with. And then because it also had John in there, we thought, well, we'll do that as well. And now we're in this situation that all this is dovetailing. And God is teaching us about loving each other. And we're told that we can love because God first loved us. You see, it's not doing something. It's a response to what God has done. You see, we won't sin because we won't want to harm each other or to grieve the precious Holy Spirit of God. Next session, we're going to carry on and look at the rest of chapter 5. So I encourage you to read ahead. Read Galatians 5. 15 to 26. But I'd also encourage you this week to read First John. Now we are going through it in our Bible studies and let's say 10th of December will be our next study when we're going to go through that. But just read First John. And particularly look at chapter 3 which speaks about this relationship and this fellowship. You know, uh, so much is, is coming out there. But I encourage you to do that because I am just feeling at the moment physically so run down. So tired, but spiritually feeling so blessed, so absolutely blessed that my Heavenly Father would lead us and guide us in such an obvious way to reveal such wonderful truths from his word. Things that help us live our lives in the way that Jesus spoke of abundantly. And that's what's there for us. That is the life that we should be living.